Romans chapter 5, again this morning. We start today down in verse 12 of Romans chapter 5. We've come to a section of this book that is one of the deepest, most wrangled over theological sections of really the Bible. Uh, Because there are a lot of different views on what Paul is trying to communicate and, and talk about here. Some see this section as a midpoint in Paul's theological treatise of the gospel, and he's taken us, as he's taken us through the condition of fallen man. And he's also brought us through the fix for fallen man, justification being provided as a gift that comes to the ungodly through faith, faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. We had fallen man described for us in detail in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. Then from chapter 3, 21 until now, we've seen how God has provided a way for man to receive the righteousness of God credited to his account. We talked about how faith is vitally important in this entire process. Is the death of Christ important? Yes, absolutely it is. Is God's grace important? Yes, of course it is. But through everything that Paul has laid out here, nothing that God has done for the sinner, for the ungodly, for the unrighteous, none of it is applied to them unless they believe. Now we make it clear that belief, when we talk about belief, faith, it's not a work on man's part. Faith is a response to what God has done on a person's behalf. It's a response or a trusting in the promise or the work of God of God. Paul made it clear that faith is not a work back in chapter 4 when he was talking about Abraham. He said in chapter 4 verse 5, but to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. There was a contrast there. The person who doesn't work but instead believes in him who justifies the ungodly, it's that person's faith that is credited as righteousness. So make no mistake, the faith that a person places in the work of Christ on the cross isn't them coming to God or getting themselves saved, but instead it's them trusting in what God has done for them and on their behalf. Faith, justification is by faith. There is no justification and therefore no salvation without faith in the sacrifice that God has made, that Christ has made on their behalf. So we need to be clear on that. And if you've been reading through Romans, which we've all been reading through Romans, and you come to chapter 5, verse 12, you should already be very clear on that point. As Paul has talked about faith and belief 27 times in the last two chapters. Now, having been justified, that puts a person in an entirely new situation, different from what they were before they believed. Paul said in the first verses of this chapter that we are at peace with God. We stand in the grace of God. We exult or confidently rejoice in hope of the glory of God, as well as in our trials that we go through, because we know that God is using those trials, those tribulations, to perfect us, to sanctify us. He talked about the love of God that's been poured out in our hearts by the Holy 
Spirit. The Holy Spirit, whom he'll say later on, is our seal or our guarantee of the future glory that we have with God. And then in verses 6 through 11, he detailed out for us what this love entailed. It was God loving us even when we were helpless, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, when we were, when we were his enemies, he said. Sending his son to die on the cross, to shed his blood for us, all in order to reconcile us, to bring us into right relationship with him. When we were of the pool of humanity that was still lost in our sins, we didn't have a right relationship with God. We were under his wrath. We stood condemned. We were dead in our trespasses. All of those things applied to us. But having believed in the good news of what he did on our behalf, that all changed. Now we are reconciled. We have newness of life in him. We will be saved from the wrath to come, and we will be with him in glory for all eternity. That is now, as believers, as those who have put our faith and trust in him, that is now what we have to look forward to, what we are looking forward to. That is the source of our confident rejoicing, the knowledge that we have that this will all come about. Now, I mentioned earlier that some see this section as a midpoint of Paul's gospel message. That's because as we come to verse 12 and through the end of the chapter, Paul is going to lay out for us more details on the distinctions between justification and condemnation. Then when we get to chapter 6, beyond the midpoint, he'll go on to talk about sanctification. And we'll end up with talking about glorification when we get into chapter 8. But here, he presents this pivot point, a summation, really, of what he's talked about in the first two sections. Now, I mentioned earlier that verse 12 and following is not one of the easy sections of Scripture, and that's really, to put it mildly. Uh, In fact, one commentator that I was reading said this about it. He was convinced that when Peter says in 2 Peter uh, 3, verse 16, When he says that there were some things that Paul writes that are hard to understand, he was convinced that this is the section that Peter had in mind. Now, I don't know if we can make that definitive claim, but there is a lot in this section that there is to unpack. And so we're going to start our look at these verses today, and I'm going to do my best to take us through this and make it as clear and as understandable as possible. And I just realized there's no clock in here. So that's a good thing? (laughs) Well, I can't see that. (laughs) So, oh, great. So you're all going to be going like... (laughs) But I figure I'm just going to keep talking until I start hearing music play, and then we'll we'll go. But anyway, so I don't know. We'll we'll see how this... We'll see how long it takes me to go through this here, so... Uh, Starting in verse 12, Paul is going to pull all the information that he's gone through together, and he's going to break it down into a comparison between two men. Two men and the two actions that those two men did and how the actions of those men affected basically everyone else. What were their actions? 
and what were the results of their actions. That's what we're going to see starting in this section here, or in this section. And if you're not familiar with this portion of Scripture, the two men are Adam and Christ. Okay? Uh, if you're not familiar with this, then you will be by the time that we're done going through this. But we're going to see that Adam, by his act of disobedience, his sin in the Garden of Eden, brought condemnation into the world. And Jesus Christ, by his act of obedience, dying on the cross for our sins, just as Paul has been talking about already in the letter, he provided the way of salvation, bringing the fix to the problem that man first created. Sometimes we talk about the first Adam, you you hear the terms first Adam and the second Adam or the last Adam, and you've probably heard these references before, referring to this same comparison here which really comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul uses the two for comparison there as well. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, so it, also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a, life, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. In verse 47 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. So again, That's where that terminology comes from when we talk about the first Adam, the last Adam. Um, But we're going to see an emphasis through here on what each of them did for mankind. And we'll see the word one come up over and over and over again through this section. Referring to each of them. The one did this, the one did that. Through this one act and through that one act. From verses 12 through 19, we're going to see the word one used I think a dozen times in this section. As a source of comparison, we'll see how these relate to each other. But then we'll also see how the act of the one affects the all or the many. Each one will affect all or many. We'll see as we go through here. He'll use the word all four times. He'll use the word many seven times through here. Now, how can we relate Adam and Christ? Why would they relate to one another? When you think of two, two people to pull out in Scripture, is Adam and Christ the first examples that you, would, that you would pull out? Well, the answer to that is found at the end of verse 14, where Paul says, Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So the comparison is that Adam is a type of Christ. Paul is using him here as a type, and the word type simply means a, a stamp. Okay, that's what the the word literally means. It's the word used here. And we understand the concept of a stamp, not a stamp you put on a letter, but a stamp like uh, when you would put a glob of wax on like a letter or some document, right? And you have a stamp. Sometimes it was maybe a king or a ruler with a ring that that would press into that glob of wax. They would stamp into it. Well, the impression of their ring or their stamp would be on the wax, Well, that's really what we're talking about here, that same kind of analogy. The impression is what Adam is of Christ, and there are certain aspects of Christ and Adam that will be presented here, certain points of comparison that Paul is going to bring out between the two. Now, we need to keep in mind that doesn't mean that you can compare every point between Christ and Adam. It doesn't mean that you can look at Adam's life and everything that Adam did and say, well, this somehow all matches up to what Christ did, and that you can look at the life of Christ and say, well, everything that Christ did somehow reflects back onto Adam. It's not 
what Paul is saying here. But what it means is that for the purposes of Paul's comparison in this section, there is an aspect of Adam's actions that we'll see compared to Christ's actions. So for comparison purposes, in the areas that Paul is pointing out here, we'll see how they are either alike or different. And that's where this type comes in. Okay, so there are other points of comparison that we'll see through here as well. Reigning will come to a picture, into the picture. We'll talk about the reign of death. We'll talk about the reign of righteousness. We'll see that as well. But for now, we'll start into the text. We're not, we're not going to get all that far today. We'll, have, we'll take this section in at least a couple lessons. But I'll try to point out all these things to you as we go along by, uh, by way of example or as we talk about this here. But as a summary of all that he said before, especially as you look back to chapters 1, 2, and 3, um, and mankind's fallen and sinful state, we'll come, we come into verse 12 of chapter 5 with a question. How did this all come about? Why do people sin? Why were people in that initial state? We've been talking about fallen man. We've been talking about the fallen state of man. I mean, back in verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul just started in with this whole section by saying the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's how he started. So how did that all come about? Where, where did the ungodliness and unrighteousness come from? Well, he starts in on that here in verse 12. Therefore, the word starts off, therefore, he's tying this back to what has come before. And some people think that it's He's just tying it back to what he just previously said in chapter 5, but others think that it's really tying back to everything that he said from or prior to this. So he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, the first thing that we note here is that Paul starts off this section, but he doesn't or he starts off this sentence, sorry, but he never completes it as a sentence. Most, if not all, of your Bibles will have a hyphen at the end of verse 12. Uh, That's basically because this sentence trails off at the end of the verse. Paul starts this comparison, but he doesn't complete it as a comparison. It's somewhat typical in Pauline fashion. He, He goes into kind of a rabbit trail in the next few verses, or maybe probably a nicer way of saying it is that he goes into a parenthesis. Okay, we all understand a parenthesis, right? It's like you say something and then you kind of clarify what it was that you were saying. So he says here, just as through one man, right? So in a a point of comparison, he says, just as through one man, and then he starts to talk about sin and death in relationship to the one man, and you'd expect it to be completed with something else over here, but it's not. He goes on then in verse 13 to talk more about the sin. Now I say he doesn't complete it, but really what he does is he he completes it later on in the chapter. If you get down to verses 18 and 19, some say he picks it up in verse 15, and you could make a case for that, but I think the construction of what he says and the flow that he's going through here indicates that verses 15 through 17 are really still part of his parenthesis where he is further explaining elements of the comparison between Adam and Christ. In fact, I think it's actually better to think of verses 15 through 17 
as a parenthesis to what he says in verses 13 and 14, or at least how he ends verses 13 and 14, sort of a daisy chain type of fashion. But either way, verses 13 through 17 give us information about the Adam and Christ development that he's making here. But if you look down at verse 18 for a second, and I know we're spending a lot of time introducing this, but again, I don't have a clock, so I don't know how much time we're spending on all this. But I think it's important that we get an idea of where Paul is going here. But down to verse 18, we see how the comparison language is picked up again, and it's similar to construction, uh, similar construction to what he's saying in verse 12. He says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. So you have the so, or the, the just as, and then the, the so then, or even so, sorry. Then verse 19, same thing, for as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. So you see the just as and the even so comparison, which we would expect him to finish up in verse 12, but that never happened. So, but the main point of his argument here can really be found in verses 12 and then continue down in verses 18 and 19 with verses 13 through 17 having the supporting or the building information that clarifies what we see in those verses there. And at times it might make sense to treat 12, 18, and 19 together and then go back and look at verses 13 to 17, but we're not going to do it that way. Uh, we'll take these verses as they come and deal with them in the order that Paul presents them here. So, like I said, we're not going to get through all this today anyway, so I'm, I'm sure that in our next lesson I'm going to remind you of this construction once again uh, as we get there. So, anyway, verse 12 again. Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now you notice I've been talking about Adam. I've been clearly saying that, that we're talking about Adam here, but Paul doesn't mention Adam by name. He will mention him later on, uh, but he doesn't start out by naming him. He just says, through one man, sin entered into the world. And that one man is obviously Adam. Paul expects his readers to understand that the one man that introduced sin into the world was Adam. All right? More importantly, he expects that his readers will take the account of Adam literally right that's a literal account and as we go through here we'll see how important it is to take the account of Adam in the garden literally just as Paul is doing here if the account of Adam and Eve isn't real if it's not a literal event then the entire analogy that Paul uses here breaks down right it's it's then, then he's left holding air basically with at least half of his argument so through one man, sin entered into the world. So this is not the beginning of sin itself. Sin had already occurred in the angelic realm prior to the sin of Adam. Sin originated with Satan, not with Adam. We won't turn to look, but we see that in places like John chapter 3, where Jesus says that the one who sins is of his father the devil, who has sinned from the beginning in John 3 chapter 8. I'm sorry, John 3, verse 8. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, chapters that, where we see the details about the fall of Satan as he desired to rise up 
to the throne of God, attempting to make himself like the Most High. This was all before Adam sinned, which is evident in the account of the fall because Satan had already fallen by that time, right? And how do we know that? Because he was the one there in the form of the serpent that was there tempting Eve. So sin itself did not originate with Adam, but it was introduced into the world by Adam. It came to the human race through Adam. Now, we won't go back to Genesis, but we all know how this went down, right? I mean, we're all fairly familiar with the account. Adam was created in the garden, and he was commanded by God to to keep the garden, to tend the garden, and he was told that he could eat of any tree that he wanted, except one, right? Here's one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. You can eat from anything else, any other tree. That was it. God commanded him, gave him a commandment, don't eat of that one tree. He told him in Genesis 2.17, on the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. So what happened? That's the tree they ate from, right? Now they probably ate from other trees too, but they ate from the tree. The serpent, Satan, she comes to Eve. She tells Eve, you surely won't die. Tells her that they will become like God when they eat of the tree, which actually was partially true because they do gain knowledge of good and evil because prior to that, they didn't know what evil was. They'd never sinned before. They didn't know what evil was. They didn't know what sin was. They had never done it prior to that. And God even says in verse 22 of chapter 3, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. But Satan's half-truth trickery, his half-lie, half-truth, half-lie trickery here, works, and they eat of the tree. Now, as we're all aware, and Paul indicates that the Romans are aware of as well, that was the act that instituted the fall of man. So that was sin entering into the world. Okay, so that was one sin, the sin of Adam. But what else does Paul say here? What comes next in verse 12 here of chapter 5? And death through sin. Sin brings forth what? Death, right? Death through sin. Paul will go on in verse 23 of chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. That's what sin brings, death. Sin has consequences. The consequence is death. And that was seen all the way back, again, in the Garden of Eden. In the case of Adam, God told him, on the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you'll die. Death came through that sin. Now, Adam lived to the age of 930. But then at 930, what happened to him? He died, right? There was death. There was physical death. But that's not the only kind of death that came from sin. And how do we know that? Because remember, God said, the day that you eat of it, you will die. Adam lived over 900 more years. Now, we have no idea how long Adam was in the garden before he ate of the tree. It might have been a week. Maybe it was a few years. We don't know. But there were over 900 more years, I would say confidently, that Adam lived before he actually physically died. But that's physical death. That's death where the spirit leaves the body and your body dies. 
But that's not the only kind of death that came from the fall. There was also spiritual death that comes from the fall. That's the kind of death that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn over to Ephesians 2 with me. We'll turn to a couple references today. We've been to Ephesians 2 a few times, so you probably all you were probably all aware of it before the first, before that anyway, but This isn't anything new, but here we see this concept, right? Ephesians 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay? This is where you were prior to your salvation, dead in your trespasses and sins. So here I am as a believer, physically alive, and even before I was saved, what was I? I was physically alive, right? I'm walking, talking, making decisions, making bad decisions before I was a believer. But I was dead in my sins, Paul says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. This applies to me. This applies to you. This applies to everyone. Everyone was dead in their trespasses and sins. But that was our condition, right? And we'll talk about why this applies to all of us or how this applies to all of us in a little bit. But then he goes on to say in the same chapter of Ephesians, look in verse 4, but God, right? Those two little words that we all have circled in our Bibles. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So there, what do we have? We have spiritual death and spiritual life, becoming spiritually alive through Christ when what happened? We believed. Again, Paul makes that clear here in verse 8. By grace through faith, right? That is how we are saved. That is how God makes us spiritually alive. Spiritually alive is through faith. Spiritual death is what separates us from God. That's the death that Adam died on the day that he ate of the fruit of the tree. They covered themselves up. They had feelings of guilt. They tried to hide from God. That relationship that they had enjoyed with him when uh, before the fall had been destroyed. That chasm between God and man had been created. They had shame, they had guilt coming from the knowledge of what they had done. So back in Romans 5, that's the event and that's where sin and death came from. That's how they came into the world. Both spiritual death and physical death came about through the sin of Adam in the garden. Now, just for completeness sake, there's also the second death, or eternal death, which we see that in Revelation chapter 20, at the great white throne, where all those who have physically died and who are spiritually dead and have never been made alive through faith are judged by God. Their names are not in the book of life, and their deeds are what condemn them, or the God judges them by the things that they've done. It says in Revelation 20, verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So ultimate judgment comes to those who are not saved, and they are thrown into the lake of fire, into hell for all eternity. So we have the second death that is actually a part of all the death that came in as well. So when we talk about death and death coming into the world through Adam, you see all of this 
is involved in that. It all started with that one act of Adam's sin. Spiritual death, physical death, and eventually the second death all came into the world through the one man. And it's important to note, death is not natural. None of this is natural. And I'm using the term natural in reference to how God created nature to be. God did not create man to die. You realize that. If if it hadn't have been for Adam's sin, I think it's pretty clear that Adam would still be alive today. Right? He would still be enjoying his time with God in the garden today. I mean, we can only speculate on things like that because that's obviously not how it happened, right? That didn't happen that way. But death would not have come if Adam had never sinned. But death is a result of the fall, not God's creation. God created man to live, but through his sin, man brought death upon himself. Another thing that's important to mention here, because there's so many who deny it, even among evangelicals today, is that the account of Adam and Eve in the garden and the entire creation is true. It's 100% true. It has to be for Paul's comparison to work here. Death came through sin, through the sin of one man. If Adam and Eve were mythological, right? Some people claim that, oh, there was no Adam and Eve, right? They were just representative of early man or millions of years of humans evolving over time. We just, we just condense it into these two people that we call Adam and Eve. But if that was the case, then what Paul says here about sin coming into the world by one man can't be true. But obviously, Paul knew it to be true. He bases his entire argument on it here. If it's not true, then there are serious theological consequences to what Paul is presenting here in Romans. But not only that, some are inclined to say, well, okay, I believe there was an Adam. I believe there was an Adam that that fell. But he came onto the scene millions of years after the world was created, right? There were, there were millions of years before this guy came on the scene and, and he finally sinned, right? The, theologic, or the, the theistic evolution camp. Well, if that was true, then Paul's claim here that death came through sin would dispute that. Because that would mean that all of those people that lived prior to Adam people or monkeys or whatever you're inclined to say that they were, they were all then still alive when Adam was around because there couldn't have been any death prior to Adam's sin. Nothing dying for millions of years would have to have been the case. You see, the point is that as Paul writes this, he understands Adam to be a real person, a real literal person just as much as he sees Jesus Christ as a real person. And the event of Adam's life when he sinned is just as real as the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. If you're going to deny the creation and fall accounts in Genesis, then that decision isn't something, isn't just a scientific issue. It has more theological consequences for the rest of Scripture than just skipping over a few chapters at the beginning of the Bible. Okay, so Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, it brought death. Now, as we continue on, we see, we see another chiasmus. You remember the chiasmus? 
it's been a while since I brought this up. I haven't mentioned that one lately. But chiasmus is just a language structure that's used to make a point, right, to drive something home. You state A and B, and then you state B and then A again, right? So if you look at it, you know, I don't have a, don't have a thing behind us anymore, but um, you state A and B, then you state B and then A. So there's a crisscrossing pattern between the two things. So here what we see is just as through one man's sin entered into what? Spell. What? Chiasmus? Yeah, someone's asking. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, can you spell chiasmus, please? Oh, 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 sorry. Uh, well, it's, it's Greek. C-H-I-A-S-M-U-S. Chiasmus. It comes from the Greek letter chi, C-H-I. It's a, yeah, kind of an offshoot of that. Sorry. So you have the, the crossing pattern, and the key is basically the Greek letter that looks like an X, which is where that comes from, okay? Um, but you have... Sin entering into the world. So you have sin is the A, and then death through sin is the B. So that's where that's the A and the B. Now he goes down and he says, so then death spread to all men, which is the B again, because all sinned, and he goes back to the A. So you can see that the the sin crosses and the death cross together. So that's where you get this construction here. So basically, these ideas are related. Paul is relating the action and the consequences of the one with what happens with all here. And that's the tie-in. That's the relationship that he's drawing. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, how is this the case? It's one thing to say Adam sinned and Adam died, right? He did the crime, so he did the time, right? That, That makes sense. But obviously here, Paul is going beyond that. He's relating what Adam did with the rest of humanity. And the question is, how do we get to this? Particularly when Paul says, all sinned. In what way is this related to his argument here? How does the sin of Adam transfer to or affect the rest of humanity, to all those that came after him? There are three different views, uh, ways that people have looked at this. Maybe, maybe more than three, probably more than three, but three ways that good, I would say, good conservative evangelical scholars have looked at this section here. And I'll relate these to you, but then tell you which one I believe is really being referred to here and that Paul is stating and going to use in his argument. Now, before I state these, let me just point out one thing. All three of these that I present are true. And by that, I mean they all fit with Scripture. But I think that only one of them is what Paul is actually talking about here. So even though I present these as not, you know, I'll present two of them as not being what Paul is talking about, it doesn't mean that they are not true biblical concepts. And you'll see what I mean after we look at the first one here. The first view is that just like Adam sinned, We all sin, and therefore we all die like Adam died. So when he says death spread to all men because all sinned, it means that the reason it spread to all men was because all men sin individually. And that is a completely true concept. We do all sin. We are all guilty, just as guilty as Adam was in the death. uh, And death is a result of our sins. This is what was going on in the first chapters of Romans. So it's easy to think that that might be what Paul is getting at here. 
But because of Paul's comparison, the one act of Adam having an effect on everyone else, I would say this can't be referencing everyone else's individual sinful acts. Throughout his analogy, Paul is going to be referencing the sin of Adam with its further reaching effect on the rest of humanity. Verse 15, he says, by the transgression of the one, the many died. That's the effect of Adam's sin. Verse 16, he says, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. That condemnation, um, that's the condemnation of all, came through that one transgression. Verse 17, he's going to say, by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Death's reign on the world came through that one act of sin on Adam's part. So you see throughout here, and he'll even get to it again in verses 18 and 19, but you see the you see the point. So this, it doesn't really fit that he's talking about everybody sinning individually here. This is really tying into how Adam's sin brought death to everyone and somehow caused everyone to sin. And so that brings us to the next possibility. Second possibility is that we sinned in Adam because we are the descendants of Adam. And this was also known as the seminal view in what that as Adam's physical descendants, we were all in Adam when Adam sinned. And there's precedent for this in Scripture. You might think, hear that and think, well, how, how does that fit? But there's precedent for this in Scripture because in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek back in Genesis chapter 14. Because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and Levi was in Abraham's loins when he did that. Now, for time, we're not going to... What time is it? Okay. For time, we're not going to develop... We weren't going to do it anyway, no matter what time it is now. But we're not going to develop that, um, that entire account. But suffice it to say that Hebrews 7.9 makes it clear that with a seminal view, since Levi was in the loins of Abraham, when that occurred, Abraham paying those tithes is also attributed to Levi paying those tithes. So that is a legitimate viewpoint of Scripture, that just like with Levi and Abraham, you can say that, that we sinned when Adam sinned because we were in the loins of Adam when he sinned, and that's the seminal view. Now, while again, that is true, the question is, is that what Paul is talking about here? Is that what he means to say? Well, I would say it's a possibility, but I don't think, well, I think there are a couple of problems with that view. One being that in verse 14, which we'll see when we get there shortly, Paul will refer to those who are under the reign of death who, haven't, who have not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Well, the seminal view says that when we sinned, Adam's sin, when he ate from the tree, all those in his loins, which is, which is everyone, ate with him, sinned with him. We have the guilt of that sin associated to us. So it's hard to equate what he says in verse 14 with that. And when we get to verse 14 in a little bit, we'll, we'll see that there. But that's one issue. But the other problem, the other issue I have with it, is that he's going to be comparing the act of Adam to the act of Christ. So if we are to understand that we sinned when we were in Adam, we committed the unrighteous act that Adam did, then his comparison in my mind, breaks down when we start to talk about 
Christ's act because then in the comparison we would have to have been in Christ when he committed his act. We were not in Christ when he committed his act the same way that we were in Adam when he committed his act. We are represented by Christ but we were not physically in Christ and I think that clouds the comparison. So while I understand that view and I think it brings us close and again, I agree, I agree with that view that it's true, that there is a sense that while we sinned, or that while when Adam sinned, we sinned with him. And through that, that is where we get our sin nature. But I don't see that that's what Paul is talking about here as a point of comparison. Instead, I would take it as the third view. And that was that Adam was our representative. Yeah. talk about here a little bit um i wasn't really going to mention that but i'll but i can i can work it in too so the third view i think uh is that adam was our representative when he sinned and so this is sometimes called the headship or federal headship view um god created adam and we all came from adam but more than just being the father of us all that made adam the head of the human race so just like the father of a household, right? We talk about the father of a household being the head of the household. And so in this sense, Adam, when he sinned, acted as the head or the representative of us all. And it made, us, made him our representative. And that's why I would say it was Adam and not Eve, because Adam was the representative of the human race. Now, we understand the concept of representation. Um, we have a government that represents us, for instance. We elect representatives. We don't. We don't always like it, but they represent us, right? Um, they decide things. They decide things on our behalf, in our behalf, good or bad. If the president says that we're at war, guess what? We're at war, right? Whatever he says. And we might sit there and say, well, I never said I was going to war. Too bad. You're part of the country. The president said you're at war. You're at war. Well, that's the idea really behind this federal headship. Adam was representing us as the first man Created. God appointed him as our representative. When Adam sinned, he plunged the entire human race into sin and death through his one act. He declared the entire human race at war with God. That peaceful standing that we had with God, or that he had with God, no longer existed. Now we might think that's not fair, right? It's not how, how, how can that be? If he did it, why should that be binding on me? Well, again... Because he was our head, fair or not, doesn't enter in. As an appointed head, there was, that was the result of it. Question. Yeah. Does the headship of Christ have to be the same as the headship of Adam? Or can the headship of Adam, being a seminal headship, be pointing to the federal headship of uh -huh. Christ? Be pointing to the federal headship of Christ. I think for comparison's sake... He, they, he's drawn out the, the comparison to them being the same. Are there other ways that Adam is not exactly as Christ was, but the comparison is made between Adam and Christ? Or is, other? as you said at the mm -hmm. beginning, yeah. the differences between Christ and Adam are there, even though Adam is given as an example or a type. Yet Christ did not do everything exactly the way Adam did, but better. Right. And 
Adam did not do everything that Christ did. Right. Instead, there are differences. There are differences. In how they are represented, and therefore, a seminal headship mm -hmm. could be pointing towards it a could. federal headship, just as in the case of the Levites right. being their priesthood is seminal mm -hmm. versus Christ's priesthood. Christ's priesthood is more of a federal priesthood because he's a priest who's been assigned his priesthood not according to a seminal priesthood. Mm -hmm. There's a difference, and yet it's there comparative. Yeah, I would say yes. There could be. There are other differences. Yes, okay. but and again, I, like I said, I think that is another view. That is that is I would say valid in and of itself, but. I lean towards this one. I mean, I mean, I get it. I, I do. I know that there are other people that, that lean towards that view as well. And there are differences, but there's also similarities. And I think as we go through here, we'll all point out more while they're, why, they, why they're the same. So you have Adam, the first man, who was first appointed as head of the race. He failed because he caused the problem between man and God to begin with. Now with Christ, the God-man, he was appointed to fix the problem. He represents mankind for the solution. And we'll see that as we continue through these verses, or at least when we get down to verses 15 through 19, we'll see that comparison made. So, as I said, that's how I see this. I understand others take different views. Good men hold to different views, probably the last two more than the first one. I don't know of anyone that really holds to that first. It's talking about everybody that sins. But there are different views on this. But this is the one that makes the most sense to me and seems to fit with Paul's flow here best. And I'll try to bring that out again as we go through this. So now we see the problem. Adam came and he sinned, brought sin into the world. Death through sin, death spread to all men, all sinned. That is a problem. That is the problem. But as I said before, competing with the train now. But as I said before, Paul doesn't immediately present the other side. We have the just as comparison over here. But he leaves us a little bit out in the cold for a bit as he doesn't present the other side just yet. He won't really complete that thought until we get to verse 18. And we'll see it start to develop before we get to verse 18. But that same comparison language returns when we do get to verse 18. Instead, we come now to verses 13 and 14, where he's going to expound on what he's talking about with Adam and his one sin, and sin coming into the world in general. So look at verse 13. He says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So here he's talking about sin being in the world. Now again, with the Jewish influence that was going on in Rome, he's making a point about the law, the Mosaic law. He keeps referring, bringing that back in. Even before the law came, sin was in the world. We saw that earlier. Chapters 1 and 2, people without the law were guilty of sin. There is still sin without the law, and before the Mosaic law came, there was still sin. I don't know the exact number of years, but there were thousands of years between Adam and Moses when the law was given there was obviously still sin around in the world. But then he goes on to say, sin is not imputed 
when there is no law. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the imputation means to be credited. We saw a form of this word over and over again in chapter 4. Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Credited, the same idea. It carries a very similar idea. It's putting something to someone's account. If I credit or impute something to you, I put it on your account. Now, I think of it like, I think of it in a couple different ways, but I think of it like getting a speeding ticket, right? You go over the posted speed limit, right? You're driving down the interstate or whatever, you go over the speed limit, and the nice officer writes you a ticket. The ticket is now imputed to you, right? We say it's on your record. Someone looks up your record. The next time you're going over the speed limit, the next officer, he looks on there, and you have something else imputed to you already. So here, what Paul is saying is that there was sin in the world, but when there isn't a specific law that tells you what's right and what's wrong, there's nothing to charge you with. So it goes on, doesn't go on your record. If I go 100 miles an hour down Highway 370, I'll get a ticket, right? An officer sees me, he pulls me over, he writes me a ticket. I'll get a ticket to that. That will be imputed to my account. But if I t- take my car and I go to a, a racetrack, I go to Indianapolis Speedway, right? And I... I take my little Honda CRV onto the Indianapolis Speedway, and I go 100 miles an hour on there. I don't even know if my car can go that fast, but I go 100 miles an hour on there. There's no charge, other than the trespassing charge probably, but there's no charge for speeding on that racetrack. Why? Because there's no law against that. Well, that's kind of the idea here. No law means no imputation of sin. But Paul's argument is there was still sin around even though there were no specific laws being broken. And that's what he continues on with here in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. How do we know that sin was in the world if there was no law? If there were no laws and the Mosaic law wasn't around, how do we know that sin was in the world? People died. Death reigned. Remember, death comes from sin. The wages of sin is death. Even during that time in the world, before the Mosaic law came, death was in the world because sin was in the world. Come back to the book of Genesis with me. We didn't go back there earlier. We'll go back there now. Oh, okay. We'll get through this. We're only going through verse 14, so don't get nervous. Jack in Genesis chapter 5, this has the record of the descendants of Adam listed out here, and it's very specific what we see here. There's one thing stressed for all these descendants, and when we read through it ourselves, we probably just skip over this. But if you look at verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 2, it says, He created them male and female, and he blessed them, and he named, and named them man in the days when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. So here we have Adam, who was created in the image of God, but then Adam has a child, and in Adam's image, he has Seth. So Adam, head of the race, starts having children, and down through the chapter, it starts to talk about his line. But note what happens here. And this is what's shown over and over. At the end of verse 5, what happens to Adam? 930 years he lived and he died. Okay, we get that, right? We already talked about that. Adam sinned. Sin brought forth death. Adam died. 
But that's not all that we see. Look at the end of verse 8. What happens to his son Seth? 912 years, and he died. Seth died too. Seth had a son Enosh. End of verse 11. 911 years, and he died. And guess what? It keeps going like this. End of verse 14. And he died. 17. And he died. 20. And he died. Verse 24, we get a reprieve because Enoch walked with the Lord. He didn't die. God took him up. But then right back at it, verses 27 and 31, he died. He died. What happens? Everybody's dying. We look at that today and we just say, well, sure. That's just normal, right? You live a certain length of time and you die. But like I mentioned before, that's not normal. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Because of sin, it is that way. From early on, death reigned. From Adam until Moses. Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Go ahead and turn back to Romans 5. Ever since Adam's sin, death has been a prevalent characteristic of the human race. Even during this time when no law had been given. But these people who were dying, the descendants of Adam... While they were still guilty of sin, they were not guilty in the same way that Adam was, which is what he says next in the verse. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. The likeness of the offense of Adam. The same way that Adam sinned. How was that? Because Adam broke a law when he sinned. And we might think, but Adam lived thousands of years before the law. The law hadn't come about. What are you talking about? But Adam did have a law. Adam was given one command. One command by God. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was it. The commandment that God gave him. And what did he do? He broke it. He he broke it. God gave him that command. And by violating it, he transgressed the law of God. How does that affect everyone else? What did that mean for his descendants that were, they were living and dying under the effects of sin? But as Paul says here, they were not sinning in the same way as Adam, in the likeness of the offense of Adam. But they were, they were still sinning. They, just, they were still responsible for their own personal sins. Don't misunderstand that. It's those sins that one day they will fall under God's judgment for. And we know that people were sinful in those days. Because God sent a flood to wipe out all but the family of Noah because of their sins. So people were still sinful. That's not an issue. But what Paul says here is that they weren't breaking any specific commandments of God, and yet they were still under death's reign. That point, the the point that comes out of this is that what Adam did, even though his descendants didn't sin in the same way as he did, which again, in my mind, is how that ties into that seminal effect again. But what Adam did made them guilty because of his headship, because of his representation of the race. They were guilty, and therefore sin was reigning over them. The effects of the sin of Adam on the human race is profound. We are all guilty of sin because we all sin. That is true, but that is not the only guilt that we have against us. We are also guilty, as we said before, because we were in Adam when he sinned. And, and, to, and that 
tie to him is there. In that sin, we did sin in the likeness and the offense of Adam because we are guilty of that sin that he sinned and we received a sin nature from that. But then here, we see that guilt extend to being outside of that sin. And this, the, this is the representation of Adam upon us. Adam impacted the entire human race by his one sin, which is why death, even though it should not be normal, is a normal event today. And we have cemeteries to prove it, right? What do we say? The only sure things in life are what? Death and taxes, right? Well, we're seeing here that we can at least blame one of those on Adam. And if you have an opinion on the other one, make sure you vote on Tuesday. But death is a normal occurrence for those in the world today. Now, at the end of the verse, we have the reference to the type that I mentioned earlier. Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So here is that type that I mentioned before, that stamp or that impression. Adam prefigures Christ. And this is a reference to Christ. Some say it's, some say it's Moses when they go through here. But as you go through the rest of the, the section, it's obviously not. It's, it's Christ. But Adam prefigures Christ in this comparison. The first Adam prefigures the last Adam in his actions as head of the race. And as Adam represented his race, us, the human race, in his actions, so Jesus Christ would come and represent the human race in his action, acting on behalf of humanity. Now we're going to end here, the end of verse 14 for today, but I just want to mention that in verses 15 through 17, he's going to build on this type that he brought up. Verses 13 through 14, were a parenthesis to explain the death and sin that came from Adam. And now in verses 15 through 17, this is really another parenthesis that he's going to further elaborate on this type relationship between Adam and Christ, showing both the similarities and the differences between the actions of the two and their effects on humanity. Um, then we'll get down to verse 18. We'll see him bring, up, bring it all together and make that comparison that he started with in verse 12. Um, okay, we'll end there for today. I'll close in the word of prayer since we're out of time.